Good morning. I want to jump right into today's scripture passage from Psalm 5. During this Lenten season, we've been looking at some of the Psalms and how they describe the movements that God wants to make in our life. And this morning's movement is from rejected to accepted. So let's hear God's word from Psalm 5. A Psalm of David. Listen to my words. Lord, consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate those who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and the deceitful, you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O Lord. Let their intrigue be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with favor as with a shield. Amen. Rejected. That has to be one of the most painful words in the English language. To be rejected, that phrase carries with it the potential for tremendous turmoil and hurt. So often, A person's deepest emotional scars come from some experience of being rejected, of being turned away, of being considered not good enough, not worthy enough, not wanted enough. That rejection email from that one special college that you were coping for, I mean, that's rough. Uh, Aspiring writers know the sting of a publisher's rejection letter and the self-doubt that eventually follows. A guy asking a girl out on a date and she says no, just crash and burn down in flames. Makes it hard to try again. The breakup of a relationship that you thought was working but the other person walked away. That cuts very deep. That, that job turned down again. That makes you feel pretty small. We all have experienced rejection in one form or another. At some point in our lives, it starts young. Maybe you were teased or bullied or endured some kind of public humiliation in front of your peers. Maybe you didn't make the team or weren't invited to join the club or the fraternity. You're kind of left standing on the outside of the circle. And as you grow, you learn to deal with rejection in all its many forms. Some rejections aren't that bad. We're resilient. We can bounce back. Other rejections hurt, but we we cover it up. We play the stoic and put on the happy face and say, I don't care. It doesn't bother me. All the while, your stomach is churning within. Some rejections go right to the core, right to our heart, and we carry the wounds with us all the time. Not wanted, not worthy, not good enough. King David understood the power of rejection. And in the psalm that we Uh, He he gives a glimpse into this movement that God wants to make in his life to go from being rejected to being accepted and ultimately to this sense of confidence before God. 
There was a line in last week's psalm, Psalm 9, where David wrote these words, Though my father and mother forsake me, yet the Lord will receive me. Right away, that gives you a a pretty good window into his childhood, doesn't it? And if you go back and read the story of his early years in 1 Samuel, you know that he was the last child in a blended family. The runt of the litter, who literally had to fight for scraps of food at the table. His parents paid little or no attention to him, saw no value or or potential in him. They hung their hopes on David's older brothers and and half-brothers as the rising stars of the family. In fact, when the prophet Samuel came to David's father with the news that God had chosen one of his sons to be the next king of Israel, uh, his father didn't even include David in the lineup of Samuel to inspect. It was only after Samuel said none of the brothers was God's choice that David's father even remember, oh yeah, I got this other son out there tending the sheep out in the mountains. David was an afterthought, and he knew it. That sense of parental rejection is probably the hardest rejection in life to overcome because it goes so deep into our identity, our self-worth, and our self-confidence. If you grew up in a home where the love you needed was not present or not available, not expressed, then you know what that feels like. Words like cold, distant, harsh, critical come to mind. The sense of loneliness and isolation Uh, rejection can have long-lasting effects. Last week I was in Nashville for a meeting of the U.S. Board of the Amistad Mission, one of our mission partners, the orphanage in Cochabamba, Bolivia. Many children come to the orphanage without much being known about their family of origin because often they are just left behind in the marketplace or on a crowded bus and their parents just literally just walk away from them, leaving them behind. And and they don't have any documentation, nothing to identify them or anything. So one of the main problems faced by the children is this tremendous sense of rejection because of being abandoned by their families. The director of the orphanage told a story of one young boy who had some deep emotional behavioral problems. He was moody, he was angry, he was having trouble in school, he was getting into fights with the other boys. The social worker at the orphanage often kind of plays detective to try and find at least some relative somewhere, some extended family, so that the kids can have some connection to their past. And so she worked hard on this case, and she discovered that the boy's mother had not abandoned her. The boy's mother had actually died. And that's how he came to be on his own. When she told this little boy that his mother had died, that he had not been abandoned, his behavior changed overnight. Can you imagine that? Just knowing that his mother had died, that was better. It was better that she had died and had not rejected him. His whole outlook about himself and his life changed. That's how powerful rejection can be. Here's the key. Often when we have childhood experiences of rejection, especially in our families, especially with our parents, and especially if it's with our fathers, it is common to project that sense of rejection onto God. We project the sense, uh, we kind of create an image of God in our minds that is similar to our experience with our own Parents, the script for feeling rejected by God starts there. If you have had a harsh or disapproving or or critical parents, 
people then tend to think of God in the exact same way. The French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote this. He said, God made man in his own image, and man then returned the compliment. In other words, we can create God in our own image. We unwittingly ascribe to God our own attitudes and feelings as an unconscious projection of our own inadequacy or or guilt or our own internal struggles. So people end up with this distorted idea of who God really is and, and what God is really like. You see this very clearly in the movement in some theological circles for the last 40 years to eliminate referring to God as Father, even though that's the primary image God uses to consistently reveal himself through Scripture, even that's how Jesus most often referred to God. Many people want to erase that language because they connect it back to their experience, maybe with an abusive father or a cold or or an absent father. And their solution is, we don't want any more father language about God. I understand their pain, but what they miss is the opportunity for healing that comes by being refathered by the loving God. That's what David discovered and wrote about. Though my mother and father forsake me, yet the Lord will receive me. David had every reason to reject the fatherhood of God if it was anything like his experience with his biological father. It would have been easy for him to descend into bitterness or or even depression. He was the unwanted child who grew up without ever feeling love from his parents, grew up in a home where he suffered verbal abuse at least, where he had siblings who were always favored above him. And yet in God he found a new father, a new relationship that superseded his family of origin, and a new sense of acceptance and confidence. Where did your sense of God come from? What's your primary image of God? Is God the harsh, critical parent? Is he the cosmic policeman? Is God sort of the irrelevant grandfather in the sky? Is God the heavenly Santa Claus that's supposed to just give you stuff? What's your primary image of God, and where did that come from? When life gives good things, so often people see that as a sign of God's blessing, of of his concern, his interest in them, his pleasure over them. But when life is good, people can feel close to God and, and feel comfortable. But when life is not so good, those same people will take that as a sign of God's displeasure, of God's rejection, of God's judgment, of God getting even with them. When our image of God is is tied either to our past traumas or to our changing circumstances, then then God becomes this fickle, very unpredictable, whimsical deity. He, he He only builds us up just to let us down. He's keeping track of all of our past sins. He vindictively retaliates against us by kind of snatching away the golden rings of of good things in our life, good health, good wealth, inner peace or success. And people can feel cast away, cast off by God. But fortunately, Jesus reveals to us the true God. He said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14, 9. We're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the the visible image of the invisible God. Anything you want to know about God, 
you can find it in Jesus Christ. And Jesus exposes this image of God as the great rejecter for what it is, a lie. But it's a lie that's easy to believe, and many people, even many Christians, have a hard time letting go of it. People hold on to the falsehood that God may love us, but he doesn't really like us very much. That God grades on a curve, and you better have more good deeds than bad deeds if you want to get into heaven. Folks say they believe in grace, God's undeserved forgiveness and mercy purchased through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. They say they believe in grace, but they don't live that way. They live under a cloud. They still struggle with feeling accepted by God. Jesus says it takes a profound conversion to accept the belief that God is really tenderhearted and loves us just as we are. Not in spite of our sins and faults, but even with them, God loves us. In John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, this religious expert who thought he knew it all, He says that this change of heart and mind from God is like being born all over again. It's that radical a transformation to really accept God's acceptance. And we need that same radical transformation today because we don't understand God's acceptance either. Today, when people, someone talks about being accepted, what they're really saying is you must endorse whatever particular lifestyle I'm living. Accepting me means accepting uh, uh, my, you must agree and condone with whatever is my thing. That, you know, a person is okay just as they are. That's what acceptance means. Acceptance means there can be no moral judgment and no right or no wrong. But, you know, Jesus never did that. He had a way of communicating love and grace without condoning sinful behavior. Like in John 11, he's confronted with a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. She was probably a prostitute. It was a set-up job to put Jesus on the spot. And Jesus, again, turns the tables on his critics who are using this woman to try and discredit him. Jesus displays profound compassion and, and respect for this terrified woman. He doesn't join in the crowd that wants to punish her. In fact, Jesus defends her from the mob, draws attention to himself, so that she's no longer the focus of their anger. But when her attackers disperse, he continues to show his love and his mercy by saying to her, go and sin no more. He doesn't say, ah, don't worry about it. He doesn't say, well, it wasn't that bad. In no way does he condone her behavior, even though she was also being victimized with Jesus It is never a loving thing to condone sinful behavior. But how do you do that without making that other person feel rejected? That is what is so very difficult today in our atmosphere. People used to say, hate the sin but love the sinner. But that's not how it feels if you're the one being called a sinner. Especially when you don't think you're actually doing anything wrong. Jesus had a way of doing it so that people still felt loved and accepted. And then they felt empowered to repent and to change and to live in a way that would honor God. I wish we could magically find a way to rediscover that today. David knew God's mercy. He was able to move past his sense of rejection to a sense of acceptance by God. Psalm 5 is really the cry of his heart, the cry of a man who wanted to please God. He loved and desired God. 
but he was also a man who failed deeply. David is a complicated, flawed man who also has a deep thirst for God. The psalm is what's called an imprecatory psalm, where David kind of releases his pent-up anger against his enemies to God. He's, he's angry at the wicked and the evil and the arrogant and the liars, who he says they don't deserve God's mercy. But there's a boomerang effect here. All those terms could be applied to him. He has been or will be every one of those people. He is just like them, exactly like them, all these ones that don't deserve God's mercy in his mind. But with one added ingredient, there's one thing that he had that enabled him then to discover that God is a gracious and merciful God, a God who doesn't give us what we deserve. There's one thing that allows him to enter into this gracious relationship with the Father, and that's humility. Humility before God. Humility that is expressed as repentance. David is not a perfect guy at all, but whenever he veers off off the road, he gets his heart back on track as soon as possible so that he could live in a state of grace rather than a state of of disgrace. He doesn't wallow in guilt. He doesn't descend into self-hatred or self-pity. He gets honest with himself about himself and goes back to the mercy of his loving Father. He finds he is welcome, finds shelter for his soul, and then he starts again. John O'Grady writes, the Savior knows that we have failures. Even when we have committed ourselves to him, the Savior redeems us from all personal failure by telling his followers that in spite of all our sin, we have value in the eyes of God the Father. A new possibility exists. We can be more than what we are at any one moment. Even in the midst of personal failure, the one who has been saved knows that he or she is still precious in the eyes of God, of Jesus and his holy community. The one who has been saved knows no sense of isolation. Jesus is the friend who will never fail, the faithful one who will never reject those who belong to him. No one, Jesus says, can snatch us out of his hand. That's John 10, 28. God's acceptance leads us to a sense of security before the Lord. Since we're saved by grace, we no longer have to wonder, how does God feel about us? His mood doesn't change. He loves. He loves And that love and acceptance gets translated in our lives into a sense of confidence. We can relax before God. We can live secure in the knowledge that God's love for us in Jesus Christ, God's acceptance for us through Jesus Christ, that is an everlasting covenant. A covenant sealed by Christ's blood. But if you're like me, you need a reminder. You need a daily reminder reminder. On a practical level, we need a daily reconnection with the sense of God's grace and God's acceptance. David says, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. We need to start each day with a reminder of God's love. And David did this through prayer. I I don't have time this morning to go into depth here, but suffice it to say that morning prayer 
at the start of your day is the pattern of godly people throughout the Bible. David did it. Daniel did it. Jesus himself did it. Doesn't matter if you're a morning or an evening person, we all need to turn our hearts to God in prayer before we get too far into the day. Otherwise, you can feel like Christ is missing from your life, and that's when all kinds of things crowd into our minds and mess with us. I have this quote from Henry Ward Beecher in the front of my prayer notebook. It goes like this, The first hour of waking is the rudder that steers the whole day. That is really true for me. I need to get my mind set in the right direction every morning. I try to do this simply when I walk my dog each morning. Just a few minutes, whatever it takes to go around the block. Not a long time, but just enough time to open my mind to the Holy Spirit. To get my heart straight for the day. To to pray through my schedule for the day. To surrender my will again to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Without it, my days just don't go as smoothly. If I skip over it, I pay for it later in the day. We need to pray every day. And in that way, we begin to experience these movements of God in our lives. Again, from rejected to accepted. Let's pray. Lord, we are complicated and often confused people. Lord, we don't always know how we feel about ourselves, much less how you feel about us. But help us to believe the promise of your word And the example of Jesus in showing us your great love and mercy and acceptance. Help us to accept how great is your love towards each one of us. We thank you now in Christ's name.